Hi, I'm Connie Loises. And this is Alex Gove. And this is Strictly VC Download. Hello, everyone. It's Friday, September 8th, and we are just finishing up a pretty busy week on our side. It's been a good one. Hope you've had a nice week as well. We don't have a new segment for you today, but we do have an interview with Michael Kim, the founder of Sundana Capital, which is a fund of funds, meaning it invests in other funds, primarily seed stage funds. We probably catch up with Michael at least once a year just to get a handle on what's happening in his segment of the market. Unsurprisingly, it's very, very busy, especially as things have slowed down in the late stage market. We hope you enjoy our chat with him. We certainly enjoy talking with him. But first, a word from our sponsor. Affinity is changing the way VCs manage relationships and increasing deal flow. By aggregating the data exhaust produced by daily interactions and communications and analyzing it with machine learning, Affinity delivers up-to-the-minute insights into professional relationships, unlocking new introductions to key decision makers, and giving you a holistic view of your team's networks in a centralized, automatically updated database without any manual upkeep. Affinity works with over 1,600 investment firms across venture capital, investment banking, private equity, and consulting, where sales are more personal, collaborative, and driven by relationships. Affinity, opening doors to help you close deals faster. Learn more at affinity.co. That's A-F-F-I-N-I-T-Y dot C-O. Michael, so nice to be talking to you. We were just talking offline for a second. You are going to India and Singapore? Yeah, that's right. One of our fund managers is based in Bangalore. And so we're attending their annual meeting on Thursday. And then on Friday, I'll be in Singapore. It's a really intensive week because the Milken Conference is that week as well as Formula One and then Super Returns. And so a lot of LPs around the world converge in, in Singapore for those conferences. We're not actually attending the conferences, but we're going to meet with our fund managers and our investors while we're in Singapore. Oh, great. Well, smart of Milken playing the conference around the Formula One. <laughs> right. Yeah, I, yeah I very smart. That. Yeah, they did that in Saudi Arabia too. So congratulations. We're talking today in part about some new funds that you've raised. So tell us a little bit about what's going on here. $470 million in capital commitments across four different pools. Yeah. I started Sindana over 12 years ago. We've always been focused on investing in pre-seed and seed funds. And so this past year, we've been working on raising our new set of funds. We've raised a total of $470 million. Our flagship fund is our US Sindana 5. We raised 340. The target was 300. So we're quite grateful that we were able to be oversubscribed. A few years ago, we began investing outside the US. So we have a separate international fund and we raised 67 million for that. And then we also have a small co-investment fund, which we use to invest directly into companies from our portfolio managers. And so we raised $30 million for that. And a longtime partner of ours is the University of Texas. And we have a managed account, which means that they are the only investor in that. And it's called Sindana Longhorns. And they've added $30 million to that vehicle. So we're feeling grateful to raise this amount of capital, particularly in this, this type of fundraising environment today. 
Yeah. Congratulations. So just quickly, the Longhorns Fund, does that reflect exactly the flagship fund? The 340 yeah. Million. So back in the day when I raised Sandana One, it was 28 million in size. So relatively small, smaller than seed funds today. And the University of Texas came alongside us in a vehicle that we created with them called Longhorns. And they put 60 million in there. So all told, we raised about 88 million for our first set of funds. And we were off to the races. So now more than $2 billion of assets under management, which is pretty amazing. I did want to ask, so I think your longtime mandate was to invest in funds that are managing less than $100 million themselves. Is that still the case? Well, it's always been sort of a line in the sand with us, but the fact is seed stage ventures changed in the past 10 years, as you know. When I started Sindana, seed funds were probably 40 to 50 million in size. Seed rounds were like one and a half million. And the fund managers that we backed were typically writing 750 to a million into those companies. So imagine a portfolio of 30 of those at $1 million each, that's $30 million. And then some extra capital for reserves. So you can see how you can get to a a 40, $50 million fund. And today, the median seed round in our portfolio is 4 million in size. Our fund managers are writing $3 million checks. So again, taking 30 portfolio companies times 3 million initial checks, that's 90 million initial checks. And then again, for some reserves, you can see how those funds are now closer to 150 million in size. So we've adapted with the market. I actually think over the next few years that the seed funds are actually going to scale back in size because it's just harder to return 5x on a $150 million fund versus a $50 million fund. No, absolutely. But you're not seeing that yet. I guess I thought you would have. We're seeing it to some extent. One of our fund managers actually in Prague had a a $125 million fund. They've done extremely well. They were the seed investor in a company called UiPath, for example. They made the disciplined decision to actually scale back their next fund, which is where we entered. And it's a $75 million fund. So I think you're going to start seeing a little bit more of that over the next few years. But obviously, with a larger fund, the, the GPs have more management fee. Ostensibly, they're using that management fee to build out a team. And the real question also becomes how effectively and efficiently they're using their teams and the scale that they've built to go find amazing founders. Michael, you talked about how venture is scaling up and how funds are getting larger. What sort of returns are you generating cash on cash minus fees? Yeah. So I can say that in our first fund, obviously the most fully baked, our net return to our investors is 4.2x. And we've actually distributed back 2.2x of their capital as distributions. Venture is a long game. It does take time for companies to become substantially valuable, I'd say seven to eight years, if not longer. And so just looking back at our oldest funds, that's the sort of returns that we're hoping for. Obviously, no guarantee and past performance certainly is not any indication of future performance. But then we look at our second fund, it's marked somewhere in the mid threes and almost approaching 100% distributed. So I feel good that our formula, our investment approach has worked and we've been very consistent and disciplined about maintaining that approach. Given the fact that you were so early to this game, valuations have increased quite a bit. The competition has increased quite a bit. What, what sort of impact has that had overall on returns in the pre-seed to seed space? Yeah, that's a really good question. I think it's a very important dynamic. So when I started Sindana, I'd say that there were maybe 15 to 20 seed funds that had brought in institutional capital. And so it was a little bit more collegial, 
It's still collegial today, but it is a lot more competitive because today there's over 2,000 seed funds in the US alone. And then also on top of that, you have the multi-stage firms with their seed programs. And so they're competing against our fund managers and everyone else. And I think the composition of a seed round has changed. Back in the day, you know, you'd have maybe one firm leading, a second firm maybe co-leading with a smaller check, and then that would be the round, perhaps with some individuals. And today you're seeing the dynamic where say a founder wants to raise $4 million, a, a multi-stage firm can come in and say, hey, we love you. We've worked with you before. We'll give you $5 million on, say, a 30 or $35 million valuation. And the multi-stage firms are a little bit less price sensitive because they're investing out of their bigger vehicles. And to some extent, those seed investments are like call options. It's an option on seeing how a company progresses. And then they can invest substantially more capital in later rounds. Just to give you some data, the median seed round in our portfolio is 4 million and the post money is 18. And that actually tracks interestingly to where series A's were over 10 years ago, where we in our portfolio the median series A round was 5 million and the post money was closer to 19. So in a way people do say seed is the new A. What they're really referring to is that the round sizes today are where series A's were 10 years ago. I think with increased competition, obviously you'd have evaluations go up. And I think what we're seeing is not exactly that. I think that founders are a lot more educated because of blog posts like from Mark Suster and First Round Capital and, and a lot of VCs talking about what they're looking for and giving advice to founders. So I think there's a lot more transparency in the industry. And based on that, I think founders recognize that they want to work with the seed fund managers who are going to roll up their sleeves and actually help the company get to the next level. And of course, if a multi-stage firm is interested, they can always come into the next round. In fact, that's more than a model. So I think it's settled out nicely. And I feel like our seed fund managers are actually doing a very good job of winning these deals. But bottom line is, if there is a lot of competition, prices will get bid up. Michael, Alex asked about your historic performance. Can you talk about where some of those biggest wins have come from which firms? Sure. We were the first institutional investor to commit to a fund called IA Ventures that was mm -hmm. started by Roger Ehrenberg. It's based in New York. They focused on data and analytics. They had several really big wins. For example, when Trade Desk went public, they owned 17% of the company. And Founder Collective was in there. They owned 13% of the company. And Trade Desk is a multi-billion dollar publicly traded company today. I would say that they've driven a lot of returns. Manu Kumar at K9 Ventures, which is a pre-seed fund, was an investor in Oct Zero, which Okta bought for $7.5 billion. And that returned, I think, 7x Manu's fund in its entirety. And that was a really big win. Kirsten Green at Forerunner has done a very, very good job. She's had a number of companies in the funds that we've invested in exit. And mm -hmm. so I feel like there's a lot of embedded value in our older portfolio still. Just to give you an example, in our first fund, out of the 450 companies that were in there, there are probably over 150 that are still active. So venture is a long game. And I think the fact that a number of these companies are actually thriving is emblematic of that after 10 plus years. But the real question, of course, then becomes when are they going to exit and how? There's been obviously dearth of exits over the last couple of years. I'm just wondering, have you sold off some of your positions in the secondary market, meaning either your stake in certain funds no. or direct investments? No, we, we've not. And for better or worse, none of our LPs have offered to sell their positions in Sendana. So I feel somewhat happy about that. 
But I think secondaries are a very important element of venture, especially in, in terms of providing liquidity. And we're actually going to see a lot more activity around there. And when I talk about that, I mean that if you look at how much capital was invested in venture-backed companies over the past five years, that's well over $300 billion, probably the high hundred billions of dollars. And I feel that a lot of that capital may be loose in the socket and people will be looking ultimately for exits. So then you've got to think, what's the secondaries market look like? The big players are like Blackstone Strategic Partners, Lexington Partners, Collar. Those are the 10 to $20 billion of secondary funds. And then of course you have industry ventures, top tier and some of the, the smaller funds, but they're still sizable. They're a billion in size. And so if you actually total up all the secondary funds, I think it's actually below a hundred million. So there is actually this green space of the addressable market versus the actual funds there. So I, I think you'll actually see more secondary activity and more secondary firms being started actually over the next couple of years. I don't doubt that. I'm wondering why you haven't sold anything. Is it because you think prices have not settled? Yeah. Well, we invest in our fund managers. We expect it to be a multi-decade kind of relationship. So that's the type of commitment that we make to our fund managers. Of course, things don't always play out and we don't re-up with some of our core managers. But what I would say is that we've not put up for sale any of our positions because we ultimately think that we're making a bet on the fund manager and then they are making the decision whether to sell a position or not. Part of our success has been that our fund managers have been proactive in terms of selling off part of their positions in companies. So I don't want to throw anyone under the bus for this, but we've had a number of our fund managers where they would put 10, 20% of their position up for, and they would take it. And it was, to be honest, a little bit easier in 2021, where the late stage firms wanted to get into these unicorns and mm -hmm. were looking to source shares in any way they can. So our fund managers did sell 10, 20, 30% of their positions in these late stage companies to those new late stage investors. And oftentimes we're turning an entire fund to that secondary sale. So our fund managers are doing it. We have not done it, but we do think secondaries are a major opportunity. I saw an announcement for a debut fund in May that you backed by Mark Germit. Germazian, yes. Yeah, who founded and long ran a customer engagement software company, Blaze, which went public. He more recently founded Ginger, which I guess loans companies capital so they can buy their software. So many operators have become part-time VCs at the same time they're running a company. I was wondering, in your right. experience, how do they stack up against full-time VCs? Yeah, there's a couple of dimensions to that. So Mark Amazing is a good example. He was the co-founder and the initial CEO of a company called Braze. It's about a $4 billion market cap company. Mark is very well known amongst the founder community. And so at the seed stage, founders introducing other founders is really the best source of deal flow for our fund managers. And so Mark is in the middle of that. And then of course, he has operating experience. He scaled a company up to ultimately being a, a multi-billion dollar public company. And so I think founders at the seed stage do want GPs who have that operating experience. That's very valuable and a powerful competitive advantage. Now, in terms of founders who have these side funds, I talked to you about our nano program a few years ago. That was actually our response to that dynamic. So what this means is that there are founders or perhaps senior people at the public technology companies who have these side funds. And kudos to AngelList for enabling that. These side funds are maybe 5, 10, 15 million. And we started Nano a few years ago just to go after those type of funds. 
And the reason why institutional LPs weren't going after that market is because fundamentally, and, and I think this is an observation that you're making, these operators are not full-time. And of course, if you're going to be giving someone two, $300 million to run a fund, you'd want them to be more than full-time on that fund. So I think it was something difficult for institutional LPs to get their arms around, but we took the risk of trying to back some of them. And I know, for example, you spoke with Kevin Novak at Rackhouse. His first fund was 15 million in size. And um, you know, we have another fund manager named Tim Chen, who runs a firm called Essence. His first fund was 7 million, and we backed that. We anchored it. Today, he raised a $25 million fund, and we're actually 10 million of that. So we did 40% of his subsequent wow. fund. Wow. Is Kevin Novak, has he raised another fund? Yeah, he's investing out of a second fund. So he's finishing up raising his new fund and it's largely done. So he's been very fortunate to be able to attract a lot of interesting LPs. And I think people recognize that his operating experience, because as you know, he was the chief data scientist at Uber, mm -hmm. brings along an amazing network of people. And he has remarkable domain expertise in both AI and machine learning. Sure. I'll have to circle back to him. I guess I wondered, relatedly, have you seen more operators disappear back into their companies as their companies have maybe needed more attention? Obviously, a lot of late stage businesses have had to rethink their priorities as cash became less freely available a year and a half ago. Right. You know, the fund managers that we back, including operators who have full-time jobs, I think maybe it modulates between how much they spend their time on their fund versus their day job. So for example, earlier this year, we invested in a person named David Eckstein, and he's currently the CFO of Vanta. And he raised a $15 million fund. It's exactly what we look for in Nano, someone who is very connected. He was the scout for Sequoia. Sequoia has been an investor in his wife's company and just very plugged in. He's based in New York. I think these days he's spending probably more time on his day job at Vanta because a lot of good things are going on there. But he's also made it very clear to us that it will take him three to four years to invest this $15 million vehicle because he has a day job. And we went in on that eyes wide open, but we think David is very special and we really wanted to work with him. Michael, as some of these funds scale up, do you ever run into a situation where an LP says, rather than paying Michael 1% management fee at 10% of the carry, I'm going to go directly to the fund that has been shown to be successful and work with them directly. Is that ever a situation oh, yeah. that you encounter? Well, in a way, that's a feature, not a bug in our approach. When I started Sindana, I looked at all the sort of traditional venture capital fund of funds, and they were very guarded about their relationships with their portfolio funds. They were not introducing their portfolio funds to their LPs. And we actually took the opposite approach from day one. We were actively introducing our portfolio funds to our LPs with the hope that they would go in directly. And part of it is because, in a way, we had to evangelize what seed stage investing and what seed venture capital looked like. And again, this was 10, 12 years ago, so it might sound kind of funny now, but back then, it was an oddity. And I think we were fortunate enough to call the trend early on that seed stage investing will ultimately be de facto early stage investing. But yeah, so since since our founding, we've been very proactive about introducing our LPs to our portfolio funds. And in fact, the way we characterize it is that we are a platform investment for our investors. And together, we work with them to actively build out their own portfolio of some of our portfolio funds. So we welcome it. It makes fundraising a little bit harder because we talk to prospective LPs. They like what they see, but then they conclude 
oh, we can do this ourselves. And the fact is, I think it is rather difficult to build your own portfolio, at least initially, especially today because of the plethora of the seed funds in the US, let alone outside the US. You posted at the beginning of the year that institutional LPs will not add new managers for the next 12 to 18 months. They will reduce commitment sizes to existing managers, decline to re-up with existing managers, and reduce allocation to VC because of the denominator effect. How has that changed since you last posted that? Do you still stand by those predictions? Yeah, that's a really good question. So when I posted that back in the day, I think that was in November of last year, what I would characterize the dynamic is that there was still price discovery going on. And what I mean by that is that the NASDAQ had fallen. It was approaching minus 30% for the year. I think a lot of the institutional LPs were thinking through their asset allocations. The denominator effect, of course, means if your public equities start shrinking, then suddenly your private portfolio looks a lot larger than what your target range is. And so that put, I think, a psychological hold on a lot of institutional LPs. Obviously, the markets bounced back to some extent this first half of this year. The other dynamic is that the private funds, PE and venture, they are a bit slower to mark the market. But I think for the most part, our fund managers at least have done a good job of marking down their portfolio. So then suddenly that denominator effect is reduced because the private portfolios are being reduced. So I think the denominator effect is more of a psychological impact over the past, say, six to nine months. I do think that in times where capital is expensive, and what I mean by that is if the US treasuries are increasing in their nominal interest rate, it becomes more attractive for investors to put more of their capital into a risk-free investment rather than putting it into risk assets like venture capital. And obviously, US treasuries are very liquid, whereas venture capital is a 10 to 12-year kind of proposition. So you know, I think institutional LPs were more hesitant to deploy to new names. But I think fundamentally, the most sophisticated institutional investors understand that you can never time technology and innovation. And so to maintain their venture portfolio was important. And to be honest, most institutional LPs, especially endowments and foundations, really do have a 20, 30-year time horizon. So they might have taken a small pause to perhaps trim their portfolio to some extent. But I think the best institutional investors continued on allocating capital to venture capital. Hey, Michael, I, I want to let you go in a second, but I did want to ask, there have been a lot of questions raised this year, including by myself, about whether LPs were going to finally push back on their venture managers a little bit to just extract maybe slightly better terms from them, or at least not get steamrolled in quite the same way that I think VCs were able to do whatever they wanted in recent years. So I'd seen a story about how Sendana is doing more co-investing, but of course, I know you've done that forever. One other thing was that you are asking your managers for the right to invest in their future funds. Is that a new facet to your proposal with your VC managers? And I guess either way, are there other ways that you or your peers in the LP world are demanding more of your venture fund managers? I think in the big picture, we're not asking for any more special terms. We've never asked for, for example, a cut of the management company, a special reduced carried interest. We've never done that. In our minds, fund managers who offer that, it's actually a negative signal because the fund managers that we have, generally speaking, don't need to offer special terms to their largest investors. So mm-hmm. we actually view that as a negative signal. In terms of actual terms in an LP agreement, the LPA, I think what we ask for is very market. I would say that just to use an example, 
most first or second time fund managers don't ask for a trigger to premium carry, meaning that if they return a 3x, then their carry goes from 20 to 25%. We started seeing more of that in 2021 with groups I'd call more like tourist fund managers. People were doing it because everyone else was doing it. I think that's been largely flushed out. I think tourist founders have also been largely flushed out. And I think the founders today and the fund managers today are the ones who are really dedicated to seeing through what they started. And so we're seeing a little bit less of the premium carry. There are times where we hold the line and if we're asking for a specific term and the fund manager refuses, we try to negotiate the best we can, but sometimes we will walk away. Perhaps there are other LPs who were more forgiving in 2021, first half of 2022. But I think much as like the pricing power has shifted toward the VCs versus the founders, I think there is a little bit more leverage that LPs have over portfolio funds. And I'm talking specifically around seed funds. I think the large multi-stage firms have significant negotiating power and LPs are a little bit less inclined to even try to change any terms there. But at the seed stage, I think what we ask for is fair, nothing special. And we're seeing more of the fund managers accepting that point of view. I find that extraordinary that as the anchor investor in a fund, you're not asking for preferential terms. No, to be honest, I don't think our fund managers would agree to it. But again, I just feel like it's a negative signal, to be honest, if someone offered it. Over the 2,000 funds that we've met with, there's only been two or three cases where they actually initially pitched us, came back to us six months later saying, oh, we're having a hard time raising. Would you anchor us? We'll give you 25% of the management company. And Again, it's three out of 2,000. So it's, it's, a, it's a fraction. Not many people offer that type of concession. And I think we would view it as a negative signal. It's, I think, probably smart in any case, given the flow of information. I mean, I have heard of managers who've asked for terms like that, and they're not spoken of very highly. Right. Um, anyway, Michael, thank you so much again. Really great to talk to you. Congratulations on your new funds and always fun to catch up with you. And I hope we can talk again in the short term when you're back, maybe from your travels. Absolutely. Great talking to you guys. Okay. Take care. That's it. Thanks very much for listening and special thanks to Affinity. Check them out at affinity.co. Have a great weekend, and we'll see you back here next week.